And then we're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to slowly look into the parable of the vineyard. And I think there's a lot of good stuff we can pull out of this. And then at the end of the teaching, and then we'll just kind of hear what God's speaking to your heart about regarding this this beautiful parable. But once again, uh, let's not forget that come next weekend, we got Chris Michelson. Let's invite friends, let people know, and have a lovely, lovely time. I think the advertisements should kind of be all over the place by now in uh, the newspapers all along south central Nebraska. But in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, and he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and dig the place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out or rented it to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at that season he sent to the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. So this is what we're looking at, and we want to see what God is saying to us out of this. What's the meaning of this parable? How do we apply this parable today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another opportunity to fellowship in a midweek service. And as we take our time to wade through this lovely narrative, we pray that you speak to all of our hearts. Open our ears. Let every heart be fertile ground. We thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of the Lord in this place. And we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. In the previous chapter, it concludes with Jesus talking to them in questions, asking them about the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or of men? And, of course, the hearers don't like to provide an answer because they don't want to get caught in any kind of error and so Jesus basically said to them, since you don't want to answer me, I'm not going to tell you where I have my power and where my authority comes from. Then he goes into teaching parables. Now we know from Matthew chapter 13, I believe verse 11, it says that the reason Jesus used parables, because parables were able to conceal the mysteries of the kingdom of God. That is to say there are certain principles that all of us can learn from the parables, like the parable of the sower. We learn that the word is the seed. We learn that the different types of ground represent individuals' hearts. We can see that the circumstances that hinder the development and the growth of the seed very often have to do with trials and tribulations or demonic situations in our lives. Well, with, with parables being able to conceal the mysteries of the kingdom, we also know that parables are capable of conveying more than one truth. So it can tell you two, three, or four different things at the same time. And the more of the parable that you meditate on and the more thought that you give to certain aspects of it, it really ministers to you. Now, this particular one is talking about a vineyard. The vineyard throughout Scripture has been a picture and an emblem, or maybe we can say a metaphor, for the house of Israel. I'll give you one example. If you go in your Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 5, I want to read Isaiah 5 beginning with verse number 1. 
Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard and a very fruitful hill, Isaiah 5 and 2. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Now notice what it says in verse 7 in the interpretation. For the vineyard of the Lord is, Lord of hosts, is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. So if you come back now to Matthew 12, excuse me, Mark chapter 12, you can see that some of the language Jesus uses from this parable comes out of Isaiah chapter 5. He talks about a vineyard that's fenced in, a vineyard with a tower. Jesus believed the book of Isaiah was inspired and was part of the canon. I know that because in Luke chapter 4, he goes into the synagogue, and the Bible says he stands up, and he begins to read from a scroll in the hearing of all the people. So God expected Israel to be a vineyard that produced fruit. He planted it. That is to say, he created it. Israel originated with one man. His name was Abraham. From Abraham, God made a family. You've heard me say this a million times. With that family, he created a clan or a tribe. From that tribe emerged a nation. And out of that nation came our Savior. He planted that particular people group in ancient Palestine. Israel being the name given to Jacob. So then, if the Lord planted the vineyard, don't you think God knows how to farm and how to be a, a wine dresser and a vine dresser and all of that? Of course he does. I mean, God doesn't get involved with anything he doesn't know how to do. If he's going to send his son to, to teach people how to become fishers of men, then obviously his son has to know how to lead people into the kingdom of God. If he says in verse 1 then that he put a hedge about it, he's basically saying he fenced it in. He provided a protective covering or barrier to keep out wild animals and other individuals who might try to get in. A wine press, of course, is a depressed setting where you take grapes and you put those grapes in a, uh, a block of stone and then people with bare feet would then get inside of those grapes in that stony place and then begin to do their feet just like this. And the way that a wine press is designed, then that juice flows out one of the little areas and then they collect that and put it in various vats. Now you can go to the Napa Valley and you can go to places around the world today and you'll still find that annually people will host grape stomp where people still can go and stomp the grapes and then people will be able to use the juices for whatever they're going to use it for, jelly, wine, or whatever. How, but you do need to know this. If ever I go somewhere and I see you involved with the grape stomp, I'm not drinking anything. But I just, I just want you to understand that there are people that still do this. Okay, the tower, of course, would have been useful for observing the greater part of the vineyard, as well as any intruders 
who may have tried to come in and also to have a glimpse of the workers involved with the vineyard. Well, when he rented it out, he rented it out because he was going to another location and he wanted some responsible people to be able to look after his assets and produce profit for him. So you would be the same. If if you had some some uh cash rent land that you know you were you know renting out to people or letting out to people, then of course in the end, come harvest time, you're expecting dividends yourself. And if you had houses that you were renting out, then quite naturally you would expect the rentees to be on time with the finances that are supposed to be supplied to you. Well, there was a certain season where the, the, the man that owned this said, I'll send one of my workers to go check on those who are overseeing my land and renting it so that I can receive from them the very fruit that I'm expecting to receive. And so when he sent his worker, let's just say he sent an accountant. When he sent his accountant, they saw the man coming, they grabbed him, and they beat him up. They roughed him. And so, of course, the word got back to the man because obviously the guy came back all scuffed up and bruised and wounded. And then, of course, in verse 4, it says he sent to them another servant, and, and, and him they cast stones that wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. Now, by now, if I was one of the servants working for the owner, I'd say I don't really want to go to this place. And maybe you ought to go because they don't seem to have any respect for me. If they don't have any respect for me, they don't respect your name. And if they don't respect your name, then how can you expect good things to happen to us? So this, this shows us then your name and your reputation should be good. And if ours isn't, then people won't respect us at all. And the fact that people would disrespect this owner's servants tells us they weren't afraid of him. They didn't care about what he thought. So if you've ever had occasions where maybe you thought your children in school were being unfairly treated in comparison with another family's child, who could have very well gotten into the same kind of trouble your child got into it, but the punishment for your child was harsh, but the punishment for the other family's child wasn't so bad because maybe they come from a different kind of affluence or power. So you know what it is for individuals to not treat you with the respect you think you should receive. So verse 5, he sent somebody else, and notice what it says here. They killed this one. You notice how their actions are getting worse and worse? They killed him and said, and many others. So this owner, for some strange reason or another, kept reaching out to them with the expectation maybe they'll change in their behavior. He obviously wasn't wearing them down with the servants that he was sending, and the more servants he was sending, the more families were having to deal with deceased people. The more funerals there were, the more unhappy people there were, and then finally in verse 6, he says, uh, having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last to them. Here's what he thought. They'll reverence my son, 
But the husbandmen said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. So by now, you should already be able to see where the story is going and what the image in the picture is. God took the nation of Israel, put it in a place where it could be totally preserved in what we call the promised land. And in that promised land, the Lord certainly did hedge them about because he told them, I will preserve you. I will look after you. But just like Isaiah chapter 5 says, he planted a beautiful vineyard and he expected grapes, but up came wild grapes. That is to say, just like the parable of the sower who sowed his wheat and then up came the tares and then the, the farmers wonder how in the world did we get all these must thistles and everything else that's coming up. And that's exactly what has happened here. God planted Israel, God created Israel, and he then put the nation of Israel under the power of different people. Well, they said they wanted a king. So they had various kings, and the kings were supposed to be running the nation of Israel. You know as well as I do, the nation of Israel did not handle God's business the way they were supposed to. In the end, because they were going in the wrong direction and the priests weren't doing what was right, which was to try to produce good wine, you know, good grapes, good people that loved God, holy people that loved God, the Lord noticed that they were going astray, so the Lord starts sending his servants to them. What servants? The prophets. He raised up the prophets, and he sent them one by one to tell them, come back to God. Repent of your sins. Turn from your iniquities. Leave the idols. Go away from all of the bad stuff, and you can read in the Old Testament how badly treated they were. To give you one instance, at the end of Second Chronicles, it talks about why God sent them into Babylonian captivity. And one of the reasons was because they refused to honor the Sabbath. Now, from the time the children of Israel came into the promised land until the end of Second Chronicles was approximately 490 years. That meant that during that time, every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year. And every seventh day was to be a day of rest. In Second Chronicles, the last chapter tells us that the children of Israel treated the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year like a market day. They were selling things. So God determined in order to get his proper number of Sabbath days honored, the children of Israel would go into Babylon for 70 years. And those 70 years were the equivalent of the Sabbath that they were supposed to have honored with God. And the Lord kept sending prophet after prophet. And Second Chronicles said the Lord sent them prophets. They wouldn't listen to them. They wouldn't hear them. How many times have you tried to talk with people about God and they didn't want to hear what you had to say? How many times have you tried to speak to family members about God and they just blew you off? Some people honestly believe they're smarter than God, some people who lack passion and fervency for, uh, for God get angry at you even talking with them about it without realizing that every time the owner sends a servant to the husbandman, 
And every time God sends a prophet or a servant to a person, he's showing them an act of love, an act of love. Every time somebody came to you when you were in sin and witnessed to you and told you about the king, that was God reaching out to touch you with a finger of love. Yeah. Every time somebody came to you and tried to curb your behavior and lead you into a deeper relationship with God, that was God trying to reach out and extend his finger of love and compassion and mercy to you. When you make the choice to avoid that, then you're turning your back on God. All over the earth, God is still sending servants to nations, to people, telling them, repent, come to Christ. And people aren't listening. However, the scripture here says in verse 6, I'll send my son. So First John, excuse me, the gospel of John tells us Jesus came to his own and his own wouldn't receive him. His own people. We know from the gospel of John his own siblings didn't believe in him. Now that's tough. Your family members are some of the hardest people to reach anyhow. So if they don't believe in you, then it's very difficult to uh, have confidence in the message that you're proclaiming, but Jesus already understood this was going to happen. And you would have thought that when Jesus came and healed the sick and walked on water and multiplied loaves of bread and fishes, that people would have looked at him and said, this is amazing, this is a time of our visitation, and we should be excited to have God's Son on earth. That was not the people's attitude. They were angry. They resisted him because they believed that he was a charlatan. Some said he was full of the devil. They were under the impression that he was disrespectful to the Pharisees because he was doing things the Pharisees and Sadducees could not do. And the Bible says that jealousy was so great they conspired to kill him. That's what they did here. So this is what this, this parable then essentially is about. They cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus died outside of Jerusalem. They drove him out of the gates, out to a hill called Golgotha. Now, if you go to Israel today, at Calvary, there's an air bus station. And you've got buses everywhere, hundreds of buses and refuse and trash and all of that stuff that's there. But if you get in a certain spot in that area, you can still look at that hill where Jesus was crucified. And even though through the process of 2,000 years of corrosion and weather change, has it's affected it a lot, you can still see the outline of a face or a skull in that mountain. Now, if in the back of your old Bible you see some um, old lithograph images of Golgotha, then it's easy to see that it's a skull-like deal because you can see the impressions of the eyes, even the nose, part of the mouth, in the heel. That's exactly how it looked in ancient times. If you go there right now, you can still see a little bit of the eyes, barely something of the nose and hardly anything of the mouth at all. But it's obvious that Golgotha, also known as Calvary, was the place where Christ was crucified. And literally, it was outside of Jerusalem. You can still walk to the old gates of the city. I've been there. And you can walk from that gate to 
where Jesus was crucified, and it's it, it's definitely a good little trip. He would have carried that cross a long ways. So verse 8 says, they took him, they killed him, and they cast him out. That's three things. They arrested him, see, took his life, cast him out of the vineyard. Where did his body get taken after his death? Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That's where they took our Savior. So look at verse 9. So what, therefore, shall the Lord of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the husbandmen and give the vineyard to others. Well, two things about this. Paul went to his own countrymen to tell them about the gospel. And Acts chapter 18, verse number 6 says, since you folks don't want the gospel and you are opposed to the gospel, talking to the Jewish people, I'm leaving you and I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. That's what happened. The Jewish people rejected the Messiah. The Jewish people rejected the Lord. And so the gospel then went to the nations. And that's why after Jesus was raised from the dead, he said, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll notice the first ten years they never left Israel. They were in disobedience. Until God came to Peter in a vision and let a sheep down in front of him with all these different animals on there. And then once he realized those animals weren't uh, uh, bad for him to eat anymore, and God said that they're clean, then he realized God's using these animals on the sheep to describe the people of the nations because in his mind, if you weren't a covenanted Jew, you were unclean and I shouldn't be around you. But God used that vision to get Peter from the house of a tanner into the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, Italian, Roman soldier. And he went in there, and then pretty soon the gospel started going in different directions, and then Paul gets saved, and he takes it to the countries of the world. So what I'm trying to say is what the Jews rejected, the, the Gentiles have been embracing. And God has taken that same vineyard and allowed other people that are non-Jewish to be there that love God. You can go to Israel today, you'll find Christians. You'll find Christians. In Romans chapter 2, the final two verses tell us that he is a Jew, which isn't just one outwardly, but one inwardly, circumcised in the heart. So I'm as Jewish as God needs me to be. I may not be ethnically Jewish. I may not have been circumcised when I was an infant, but I'm Jewish because Salvation brought the circumcision of God to my heart and to yours. Where the Jewish people stumbled, the Gentile people have received. And Romans 1 makes it very plain regarding the gospel, to the Jew first and then to the Greek or non-Jewish person. So this, this parable then is a beautiful illustration of what happens with the rejection of the sun. And one day when the Lord comes, we're going to have a period of time where folks are going to be judged. And this is where we could get into Daniel 9, the book of Revelation, what the scripture calls Jacob's trouble. Because when the church is called away and the seals are opened, People are going to quickly discover that that whole time frame, according to Daniel chapter 9, is about dealing with the Jewish people 
because of how they reacted toward God, His Word, and His Son. And the defining marker for when those things take place is the period when the Messiah was cut off or died on the cross. Well, in verse 10, Jesus confirms everything he's saying. And he said, didn't you read in the Scripture? Because the Lord believed in the Scripture. He said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. So again, Jesus affirms his belief in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, he believes he himself is the stone which the builders rejected. He's quoting Psalm 118, so he obviously knew what Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23 said. And when he said it's marvelous in our eyes, he said this thing is designed to leave us scratching our head. God's son has come, and he's been mistreated. So this parable conceals mysteries of the kingdom that the ancient people would have heard and knew that Jesus was referring to them. They would have understood immediately, this man is telling us he's God's son, and he's also telling us that we're the killers of the prophets. Well, they were. They were. Well, let's take it even further. Here we are now in the 20, you know, 21st century. And, and Jesus' son is still here on planet Earth, but how is he here now? Through his church. The church is his body. He is the head. The body is still on planet Earth, walking through the Earth, trying to tell people about the fact that the Son, or the Father, I should say, wants to receive a harvest from all that he has made. But what's happening to the Son around the world today? Son's being cast out. Son's being killed. So you go to Central Africa today, Christians are being kidnapped in Niger. Christians are being kidnapped in Chad. You, you go to China. Christians are put in the work camps in China, way out in provinces, far from any kind of city or civilization. And they're having to work sometimes 16, 18 hours a day with nothing more than five or six pieces of bread every couple of days and a little bit of water. You, you think about the, the, the Christians that have been persecuted in the last 100 years or so over in Russia, communist Russia. Christian preachers, Christian fathers and mothers that have died, people who've been placed on the rack, whose bodies have been broken, bones have been torn asunder simply because they have stood fast with Jesus Christ. And even in communist Russia today, you still have Russian Orthodox priests that go out of their way to turn in Protestant churches that refuse to conform to the Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah. South America, last 100 years. Roman Catholic churches burned Protestant churches, excommunicated people that truly became born again. They have stoned people in villages from Venezuela all the way down to Paraguay. Last 100 years. You don't hear stories about this all the time. You get some Christian magazines that may talk about this, but to, to learn about these things, you've got to dig deep into history to read all of this, and it's all because the Father keeps sending his son to people saying, I'm looking for a harvest. I'm looking for a harvest. All of this belongs to me. This ball of wax is mine, and I expect you folks to line up and honor me, and people don't want to hear what God has to say through his son. 
And let's not even mention what's happening in the Middle East from North Africa straight on over into uh, Asia with regard to how Christians are treated in Muslim countries. When ISIS was in charge of parts of Iraq, a little portion of Turkey, Christians were crucified in the city squares with people standing out there in Muslim territories even today. Christian girls are abducted, forced to marriage, marriage with Muslims. They're raped by a whole lot of Muslim men in the middle of the night oftentimes. And, and then by the time that happens, they already know there's nobody that's going to want them, so they also force them into marriage with a Muslim. You think of the Christian preachers that have been beheaded, shot, beaten to death. When uh, the folks over in China hated Christianity so much 50 years ago, they had a Christian preacher that was out in the streets trying to tell folks about the king. A policeman walked over there with other policemen, had dogs, and they turned the dogs loose on the Christian preacher, and the dogs mauled the man to death, ate the man's flesh. Hundreds of people standing out there watching. Why would they do that? Because they hate God's son. They hate God's son. And if, if, if we keep this going and even talk to you about when the first missionaries had to go amongst the cannibals, and the cannibals didn't want to hear about any kind of God that had a son, and all those difficulties, the people involved with animism, Japanese religions, Shintoism, Japanese religions, the people deeply involved with Confucianism, just deny any God, the, the wildness of the Hindus in India today. You remember over 20 years ago, the one missionary family that was in a car in India, and the Hindus surrounded the car, set the car on fire, and then wouldn't let the Christians out of the car. Stood there and watched them burn to death as they screamed and yelled. When Tiffany and I went to Ankara, Turkey, years ago, I had to preach there. And, and I'm, I'm recalling the story of a man who was a very strong witness in that country, in that area, and he had led some people to Christ, and one man faked like he wanted to become a disciple of Christ in order to find out whether Christians were meeting for their Bible study. He came on several occasions to learn about Jesus. And then one day he told the man who was doing the teaching he wanted to meet with him. It was either to convert or either to learn more about Christ. But when they got there to that apartment that he walked in and said that man hit that Christian, that he strung that Christian up from the, the rafters and flayed that man, flayed that man. The, the neighbors could hear all the screaming that was going on, never did call the police. Never did, with all that yelling that was going on. And when it was all over, I still remember reading the reports uh, online coming out of Turkey. When they had the trial for the man that flayed and murdered the Christian, he got off because they said Sharia law permits him to take the life of somebody that blasphemed Muhammad. The father keeps sending his son. And believe me, these things are not going to stop because the husbandman in the vineyard have an antipathy towards the father. 
They honestly believe this world belongs to us. It doesn't belong to God, especially not the God of the Christians. But God in his love is going to continue to talk to young people and older people in churches who are reading tracts and reading the Bible around the world, and people are still going to pack their bags and go somewhere and tell folks about Christ for the rest of their life. People are still going to witness to the cash register attending because they honestly believe this book to be true. And every time we witness and tell somebody about God, that's God's finger of love reaching out, saying to them, come and accept my son. I honestly believe that in these last days, the love of God is reaching out for more and more people. But the more that love is extended, the more we're going to see how people disrespect our God. It offends all of us whenever we hear people on television say bad things about Christians. You listen to these politicians today, and whenever they try to describe the followers of the former president, they make it seem like all of the followers of the former president are Christian, or they make it seem like the portion of them that are Christian are terrorists and fanatics like Muslim folks that bombed on 911, and all it is is a mentality that hates the father. That's all it is. There's nothing we can do about that. The adversary is in the hearts of sinners creating wrath and anger. But what we can do is still be peaceful, walk in love, and watch the example of the Father. With so many people that were shamefully treated and had died, God kept sending them. You see? So this is why we're here in this area right here, every single one of us. You may witness to one person. You may witness to ten people. Every one of them may yell an expletive at you and tell you they don't want to hear what you have to say, but you still have to keep going back to the next one. And don't ever stop. Just because people get angry, people get fed up with hearing what you have to say, it is God's love manifested through a church that lets sinful people know that God is reaching out to them. And one day when their eyes are open and they truly come to know the Lord, then they'll realize, I once was one of those people that treated God's son so bad. Yeah. Yeah, we've all been there. If you've ever been indifferent, if you've ever been hostile, if you've ever been self-righteous, if you've ever been complacent, then we were like the husband and that weren't interested in the son. So it's a beautiful, beautiful parable that speaks to each of us today and uh, just a lot of good stuff in there. And I pray that, that God would help us all to walk with God in truth and in a powerful, powerful way. But, but let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, being able to communicate your word in such a a true and clear way. We we appreciate the fact that you have revealed to us who we were, but you also have revealed to us who we should be. We don't want to be like the husbandmen, but we do want to be like the servants that kept going back, reaching out, sharing the Father's love, helping people to be accountable for their actions, looking for a harvest on behalf of our Father. 
And God, lead each one of us and guide us and help us in our speech so that we can tell people about the King. These things we pray for in Jesus' mighty name, and everyone says, Amen, 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 Amen. Isn't that a lovely picture?